Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be able to come together like this in chapel. We're grateful that you love us. We're grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're grateful for his holiness. We're grateful for one another. We're grateful to be saved by him, bought at a price. And we pray, Heavenly Father, as we hear this word this morning and reflect upon it, that you might teach us different things, teach us your ways, teach us how to live for you in this world, that we might love you, that we might follow you, and that we might live for the Lord Jesus more and more. We pray for that, knowing the, the messy realities of pastoral ministry and life and relationships. And we ask for your help by the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Long before the birth of Jesus, the ancient Romans had a clearly defined institution of marriage with rights and privileges protected by law. Roman marriage was not primarily about sex. In the ancient world, where a large proportion of the population were slaves, sex was readily available outside marriage. Marriage was about children, property, politics, the orderly succession of generations. The ancient Romans did not uh, much care with whom they mated, men, women or children. Though some disgruntled critics thought the pedophilia of the dour Emperor Tiberius unworthy of his exalted office. Still, an elite Roman male who had sex with a slave girl in the morning, a young male in the afternoon and his wife at night would not have been thought unusually perverse, not even by his wife. All this changed when the Roman Empire was Christianised. Christians banned non-reproductive sex limited sexual activity to a potentially reproductive relationship between husband and wife, severely restricted the possibility of divorce and extolled the virtues of sexual abstinence. The change would have startled Julius Caesar. So writes historian David Steinmetz about the revolutionary change to sexual ethics which took place with the Christianization of the Roman, ancient Greco-Roman cultures. And in this letter, the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians as these tectonic plates are beginning to shift. In some ways, the church looked uh, like, similarly, uh, to the pornified or porneified culture around it. They were a community lacking in self-control, verse 5, proud of indulging in immorality, not known among the pagans, chapter 5, and were warned against a range of deviant sexual practices, chapter 6. So ingrained were these sexual challenges that the Apostle Paul commanded them in this first letter to flee from sexual immorality and in his second letter lamented over those who had not repented of their, quote, impurity, sexual immorality and sensuality. Our passage begins with Paul addressing some matters which the Corinthians raised with him. It's the first of six particular concerns that he addresses in this letter and it's no surprise that he raises the question of sex here. It flows naturally from his last discussion about sexual immorality in the previous chapter. And I take it that it's not a quote but Paul's own belief that verse 1, it is good for a man not to marry. Understandably though, Paul goes on, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So into this messy church context, Paul is making countercultural claims 
for both chaste celibacy and chaste marriage. He called it good for a man not to marry. And that's surprising advice. You know, it's sort of a reverse echo of Genesis uh, chapter 2. Um, it's surprising also, given the legal and societal benefits involved with marriage in the Greco-Roman context. However, if chaste celibacy was a good option, this did not make marriage bad. No, Paul also thinks that it's good to marry. And more surprising advice here too. Indeed, Paul's theology of marriage was unusually progressive for the male-dominated Greco-Roman cultures. It probably would have shocked the Corinthians to hear some of this, that not only the, uh, the, did the husband have rights to the wife's body, but she had rights to his as well. Indeed, there was a, a marital duty that husbands and wives were mutually obliged to act upon, and the husband's and wife's bodies belonged to one another. Many things could be said here, but perhaps uh, one of the most important and most countercultural points is the sexual selflessness that Paul assumes. The language of duty and belonging emphasise giving more so than receiving. Other person-centredness, we might say, in the marriage bed, not self-centred gratification instead. And this, of course, uh, links in with verse 5 and Paul's concession that by mutual consent, the pause button could be pressed. You see, Paul perceives that the human sex drive is a strong force. And that's why in verse 7, he wishes that all men were gifted with celibacy like he was. And why verse 8, he thinks that it's good for the unmarried and the widows to stay that way. But he gets it, verse 9. If they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, of course, Paul will say elsewhere that we should avoid sexual immorality and that we should learn to control our own bodies, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But here, Paul is making the point, and quite strongly too, an imperative, this, this passage is full of them, that, that it's good to want to be married if you're burning with passion. And yet, as any married person will tell you, Marriage doesn't solve all your problems, sexual or otherwise. And so from verse 10, he speaks into the messiness of marriage. Separation and divorce were a feature of Corinthian culture, just as they are similarly in the Sydney scene. So the Apostle summarises our Lord's own teaching on divorce in verses 10 to 11. And what do the Gospels record that Jesus taught? Well, in short, uh, he did not encourage divorce but permitted it on the grounds of adultery. We might call divorce a retrieval ethic, something that retrieves a lesser good rather than let a greater problem persist. Now, now in the time available this morning, and you've probably noticed already, we can't do, possibly do justice to all the pastorally and theologically sensitive uh, and important issues bound up with the subject of divorce. 
and various other subjects. But I trust that you'll, I trust you'll understand me at that and cut me a bit of slack. But if you do want to go a little bit deeper into this subject, can I suggest um, our Diocese for the 2019 uh, Doctrine Commission Report on divorce and remarriage. It's quite good, and you, you can, might want to plumb the depths of that. But with that said, I would like to point us to one important feature of uh, verse 11. That it is the possibility of reconciliation. You see, the act of adultery does not in and of itself dissolve the marriage. Rather, the subsequent act of divorce is what dissolves it. We need to know that one of the avenues of approach when a marriage becomes messy in this way is that of reconciliation. And it's massively countercultural, and it's certainly a, a morally gargantuan task for the couple, and especially for the poor person who did not commit the adultery. And I raise this um, partly because in our cancel culture, the possibility of reconciliation is often not uh, countenanced. And I raise this partly because I do think we need to hold up husbands and wives as moral heroes when they undertake such a task of reconciliation. I know an elderly couple who were in the ministry until one of them committed adultery, but they stayed together and they've spent the rest of their lives reconciling as a married couple. I consider them both moral heroes and one in particular a moral champion. Now, it doesn't always happen that way. We know that. And there's much else that we could say about these messy realities. But this morning, I just would like to call that point and that task of reconciliation to us to remember and encourage us to uphold those husbands and wives who pursue it. Well, another messy aspect of marriage then and now is the reality of mixed marriages. That is, how ought we approach the reality of the Christian person who's married to an unbelieving person? This picks up the circumstance in verse 12, and this time he's not expanding on something that the Lord's previously said. Here Paul is not encouraging believers to marry unbelievers, as believers and unbelievers shouldn't be yoked together, so too should believers not contract marriages with unbelievers. No, here Paul is speaking into the sort of situation where one member of an unbelieving couple gets converted or where one member of a believing couple may well have walked away from the faith. That sort of reality. In verses 12 to 13, Paul says that if the unbelieving person is willing to live with the believer, then there's no need for a divorce. It's okay. Or in Old Testament terms, you know, note our Old Testament Bible reading, it's not unclean. They do not need to be broken off for the from the community of God's people. And I think that these categories help us make sense of verse 14, that an unbelieving uh, wife or husband has been sanctified through the believing partner. And maybe not make total sense of it, but make some sense of it. That thus a Christian spouse needs to know that their marriage is not sinful in this circumstance, that they're not second-class Christians 
because they happen to be married to an unbeliever. And that in life and in sex, the unbeliever is sanctified in such a way that the believer isn't made impure. But I think that's pastorally important. Some people in our churches can really feel that. And, and that's a pastorally important point. But nor are the children of that believing person considered impure, unclean, cut off either. The Apostle Paul doesn't see children of believers as being little pagans, but rather, as verse 14, as holy. But you might ask, how can children be considered holy if Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, says that we're all by nature children of wrath? How can the children of Christians be considered holy if everyone born through the seed of Adam is equally dead in sin and liable to damnation? How can the Apostle Paul give a privileged place within the Christian community to children of believers but not children of unbelievers? Well, part of the answer relates to the phrase used all throughout the Old Testament and a phrase rehearsed by the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2, verse 39 that the promise of God is for you and your children. The privileging of children of believers is why Paul writes to the Ephesian church, teaching both adults and children in that letter, and addressing them at the start of the letter as God's holy people in Ephesus. Just as children were considered part of God's people under the old covenant, so too are they considered part of God's people under the new. And that, of course, is why we, as Anglicans, good, faithful, you know, confessional 39 articles believing Anglicans, believe that children of believers ought to be baptised. As Calvin writes on this verse, though he's not an Anglican, he's still all right. <laughs> if the children of believers are exempted from the common lot of mankind so as to be set, up, uh, set apart for, to the Lord, why should we keep them back from the sign of baptism? That's probably set a few questions off in your head, and that's good. Think about them. The last messy aspect of mixed marriages that the Apostle Paul raises comes in verses 15 to 16. Paul says that if the unbelieving partner leaves, then the believer is freed from their marriage that they're no longer bound to their former marital obligations and that they enjoy living in peace. There is always the hope that the unbelieving partner might be saved through the witness of the unbelieving wife or husband or in the language of 1 Peter 3, that the wife might win over her spouse. But it doesn't always happen that way and that too is another hardship associated with the reality of mixed marriages. And so that's a short sermonic survey of some perplexing passages to preach on. Perhaps it could be summarised with a phrase which my friend often used to say, relationships, they're an unavoidable mess worth making. I like to think that the Apostle Paul had something like that in mind as he was writing this letter to the Corinthian church. He knew it was a pretty messy place. And I think that if Paul looked at us, our families and our churches, and if he wrote us a letter, 
then I think you probably have something like that in mind too. We have messy relationships, but those messy relationships are worth making. And because they're unavoidable, we need to be Christian in them. Paul says in verse 17, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. And in fact, this was a rule that Paul laid down and he says he lays down to all the churches. I think it'd be a good rule for us too. Eight times in this latter half of the passage, Paul uses the word called, that we should remain in the situation God calls us to. It doesn't matter whether you're single or married, male or female, even, Paul goes on to say, slave or free. Extraordinary. The Lord wants you and I to live for him in all the messy relationships that make up your life package. How? Well, I think part of the key of the answer to that question comes from verse 23. Echoing something he said earlier in the letter, in the last chapter. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. And I think this helps transform the Corinthians and our outlook in at least two ways. Firstly, it tells us that we are infinitely precious to Almighty God. That is, it took the infinitely valuable death of Christ to purchase your redemption. Just think about that for a moment. The infinitely valuable Christ had to die to save you and I. That's what it took. So no matter, no matter how joyful or desperate your messy relationships, you matter that much to God. Secondly, what do we see with this phrase, bought? It tells you that he's the master of your messy relationships. He's the master of your messy relationships. He owns you in a good way. He issues commands and supplies wisdom to enable you to serve him through your various circumstances. And so whatever life package you do have or will have in the future, whatever messy relationships you might find in your ministries that you're living amongst and serving amongst, you can turn to your master who sets you apart and who supplies you for service in this beautiful household of faith. So I say to you this morning, remain close to your master as you live and as you minister in these messy relationships. If you're married, consider your spouse and your duties towards them. If you're single, consider yourself and your duties more broadly. If you're a parent, consider your children and your duty of care for them. And whoever you are, consider that Christ loves you and he sets you apart for service within whatever messy relationships you have. Living for the master might feel costly, but friends, you were bought at a price. Let me pray. 
Heavenly Father, in the midst of all of our messy relationships now and what will come in the future, would you help us to look to our Redeemer, Jesus, and then to find in him our star, our sun, as we remain guided by that light of life, would you help us walk until our travelling days are done? We ask this, knowing we need your help and the empowerment of your spirit to live godly, holy lives in this messy world in which we are placed and cared for by the Master, in whose name we pray, Amen.